0: Good morning. My name is Leslie Rowe, and I'm here on staff at Denton North. And the first thing I want to do is just welcome you here this morning. Um, For all of you that are always here, and for those of you that this is your first time to be here, um, we're glad that you're here with us. And I hope that if there is any way that we can serve you, if there's any questions we can answer for you, that you'll feel free to talk to one of us at the end, um, because we would be happy to spend some time talking with you. So we're gonna continue our sermon series on building right beliefs and reading of scripture. And I have really loved this sermon series. Reading the word is something that I can get excited about and something I believe with my whole heart is absolutely critical to knowing God and to being able to live well for him. Um, my dad had some physical limitations And because of that, and because of just the generation he was raised in, he was an excellent storyteller. Um, He and I talked on the phone almost every day when I was in college, and then even after I was married, we continued to talk a lot. He was a good listener, he knew about a lot of things, he knew really interesting things, he knew really informative things, and he also knew really random things. Um, But, you know, I find myself asking a lot of times, why did I not record those things? Why did I not write some of that down? Because not a day goes by that I don't think of something I want to ask him and something that I thought I knew and I just can't quite remember that I know that he would know. And the thing about the Bible is that God took the time to record our story for us, to record the story of what he wanted to do from the beginning of time, to record the story of who we are as a people and who we are to him. And how really precious is that? How really great is it that he put that in writing for us through other people, obviously. Um, But I also would say that I cannot imagine my dad having written something like that about our family and me never looking at it. Like, I would have that out, reading it over and over again. And I think that God's word is the same, that we should treasure it as the gift that it is. And we should read it over and over again and find ourselves wanting to be in it. See, the word is living and active, and it has encouraged me, it has challenged me, it has strengthened me, and it has transformed me more than I could ever share with you, more than I could ever be able to communicate to you. And Brad has done such a great job in the sermon series of teaching us the usefulness of the word. It's useful for knowing God and for doing good. It brings order out of chaos and light out of darkness. And it's good news for all people. He's challenged us to stop being lazy when we read the word. And he's given us great questions to ask of the scripture. Questions like, what does this tell me about the character and the heart of God? What does Jesus, how does Jesus give me truth in this passage? And where is the bite in this passage? And how does it challenge me? And once I've figured out what the bite is, then where is the grace in this passage that I so badly need? And how do I communicate that grace and truth to other people? What am I to believe as a result of this passage? And this past Sunday, he walked us through exegesis which is just hearing the word as the original hearers heard it back then and there, and hermeneutics, hearing the same word, but in the here and now, like what does it mean for us now? And he encouraged us to let the authors inform us by asking, what is the author's point, and how do I know that? And when I think about those questions to ask of the Scripture, it all seems pretty easy until I start trying to do it. And this is where I have to confess that I actually have a love-hate relationship with this sermon series. I love the word, I love the good news, I love knowing my God more deeply, but exegesis and hermeneutics confuse me, and they are hard. It overwhelms me to think about doing background research and to look for the original meaning of the text. It's embarrassing to admit, but if I'm honest, in some ways it paralyzes me. Because I'm intimidated and I don't feel academic enough, or educated enough, or theological enough to think through these questions. And I get frustrated and I get discouraged. And so, if you relate to that in any way this morning, I want to assure you that you are not alone. But on the flip side of that, one of the reasons that I share that with you is so that you'll know that I don't ever teach or preach anything to you out of a place of having it all together and having it all figured out. Most of the time, the sermons that I share with you have come after a time of intense wrestling um, with whatever the topic is, me personally wrestling with that before I share it with you. And it's only by the power of the Spirit I can honestly say that you would ever get anything beneficial out of anything I would stand up here and say. But I want to keep learning, and I want to know my God more because I don't have it all figured out. And I can't give up just because it's scary or just because it's intimidating. So why is it important? Like, why are exegesis and hermeneutics, why are interpretation and studying the Bible important? Because I bring to the Bible all of my experiences, my culture, my prior understanding of words and ideas, and I can't help it if for years when I read the word church, my understanding of that was a building with pews. That's just where I came from. I can't help it if when I read the word curse in the Bible, the first thing I think about is cuss words. I'm strengthened by the truth that the gospel was written for everyone and that I have the power of the Spirit living in me. And so I just wanted to encourage you a little bit this morning that I know some of these things for you are old hat. You've got it down. It's great. You're all excited about it. But I know that for just as many of you, it's confusing, it's intimidating, it's scary, and you're tempted to just ignore it because you don't get it. So here I am today preaching on the topic of exegesis. What is it? And Brad did a great job explaining this last week, and he covered a whole lot about it. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time going back over that, but I am going to start today by giving you the exegesis for dummies version of it. So here we go, and then we're going to get into our text for today. So I have a slide up here where I've just kind of condensed a few things about exegesis. So exegesis is just finding the original meaning of the text. That's what we mean by that. What was its original intent? What did it mean to the original audience or the kinds of questions we ask? It's important because scripture cannot mean what it has never meant. It has to come from the original meaning. And there are two things important to good exegesis. The first one is to read the text carefully, to read it many times, to read it in more than one translation, to read it out loud. And for that, you need a good study translation. If you guys have heard me speak before, you've heard me read from the message. And I've tried to tell you almost every time that I have that the message was never intended to be a study Bible. The message is a reading Bible. The purpose of it was to get people reading. When you're going to study, it's what they call a free translation. When you're going to study, you need to use a translation that is much tighter. And in chapter 2 of how to read the Bible for all it's worth, there's great information about how to choose a reliable translation and one that's helpful for study. The second important thing in good exegesis is to ask the right questions. So we want to try not to let our ideas and our thoughts hijack the meaning of the text. So those questions that you learned in English, the who, what, where, when, why, those are good questions to ask of the text. And then asking yourself, what would this word, what would this proverb, what would this parable, what would this story have meant to the original writer? And we can find most of these answers in the Bible itself. And so it's important in doing exegesis that you make your own observations first, and then the last thing you do is to consult a Bible dictionary or a commentary. But those are necessary at some point. So today we're going to start with our text, which is Luke 4, 14 through 30. And I'm going to read that out loud and then we'll dive in jesus returned to galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him he went to nazareth where he had been brought up and on the sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was handed to him Unrolling it he found the place where it is written the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about this. God, I just want to pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what We can learn about you in this text, to what the message to us is today, and what the original intent was to the hearers that heard it the first time. I pray that uh, you would help us to get outside of our preconceived ideas, of our understanding of words, and help us to look further to be able to get a deeper meaning. Um, I just pray that uh, you would work through our weaknesses, Lord, and that your name would be glorified and that we would have an encounter with you through this text. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I read this um, at least 25 times this week. And I read the other recordings of it that are in Matthew and in Mark as well. Because I wanted to be able to find out as much background as I could, and I wanted to use the Bible to do that. So the first question I had to ask myself was: who wrote the book who wrote the book of Luke? <laughs> And most likely it was Luke, although there's no place in there that says it's Luke. He was a Gentile by birth. He was well-educated in Greek culture. He was a doctor. He was a companion and loyal friend of Paul. And many of those things we can find in Scripture about who Luke would have been. And the message of the book, or at least one of the major messages of the book, is to show the place of Gentiles in God's kingdom based on the teachings of Jesus. And so then in this passage, who was speaking? Jesus was speaking. And who was he speaking to, and how do we know that? Well, if you look at the fact of where he was, he was in the synagogue in Nazareth, which was his hometown. So in the synagogue, he would have been speaking to Jews and to God-fearing Gentiles, both men and women, so that's who he was speaking to and how we know that. And when was he speaking? He was speaking on the Sabbath, and that's in verse 16. And so he reads this, um, this quote from Isaiah, this passage from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, that was what they would have understood to have been the promise of the Messiah. And so when Jesus said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, that was good news. They have been looking for the Messiah for years. They've been waiting for him. And Jesus says, I am the one you've been waiting for. But that is not good news if you don't believe it. So if they don't believe that Jesus is the one, that's not good news for them. And if he's not what you expected... If you were expecting one thing, and he was totally different, that's not good news. And they were expecting a king. They were expecting a king that was going to come in power, and that was going to set them free from the oppression they suffered from the Romans and from others. And they expected him to crush them, to put them in their place. And in verse 22, it tells us all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask. So immediately the question is, how did they go from that to we want to push him off a cliff and kill him? What happened there? And when they ask, isn't this Joseph's son, What they're really asking is, wasn't he raised in our community? Like, isn't he one of our own? And then in verse 23, Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. And so when I look at that first proverb, Physician, heal yourself kind of what that says in in my understanding when I look at it is, what good does it do for you to be able to heal other people and do things for other people if you can't do it for yourself? But I had to ask myself the question, if this was a proverb, what did it mean to them? Because most likely, it didn't mean the same thing to them. And so, because it was a proverb— and I didn't have to look for, like, um, necessarily a biblical meaning for it. I just Googled, what does the proverb, physician heal thyself, mean back in Bible times? And then I looked at several different um, sources. And all of the sources said the same thing. And so I felt pretty confident that it was a pretty good interpretation. Um, and so what this proverb is saying is that it means Don't do favors for others that you refuse to do for your own people. And that's how it fits in with that verse that talks about do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. So basically what they're saying is you did miracles there. Don't do miracles outside of our community, outside of your hometown, that you're not going to do here as well, is what they're saying to him. In verses 24 through 27, Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. And so again, this idea of no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And he's giving two examples here of prophets that were not not accepted in their hometown, Elijah and Elisha. Now, I cannot possibly understand what this reference here means if I don't go back and read those stories in the Old Testament of Elijah and the widow and Elisha and Naaman. And so if you go back and look at the text of those, which are in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you see that with Elijah, there was a a three-and-a-half-year drought in Israel. And God tells Elijah to go to this ravine, and he's going to send ravens to feed him, and he's going to drink from the brook there. That's how he'll sustain him during this time. But after a time, the brook dries up. And so God tells him to go to this widow in Zarephath, but he doesn't tell him a specific woman to go to. He just tells him there's a widow there and that she's going to feed him. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. There's a famine in the whole land and God's plan to feed me is to send me to a widow and a widow that is outside of our community. A widow that is not part of Israel. That's the plan here. And so Elijah goes and he finds this widow. Um, She happens to be there picking up sticks when he comes to the town gate. And he asks her for something to eat. And she says this. I have only a handful of flour in a jar and a little bit of oil in a jug. And I am gathering sticks so that I can go home and make a last meal for me and my son. And then we have no more food and we're going to die. That's who is going to feed Elijah. And so Elijah tells her, I want you to go home. I want you to make me a small cake of bread with that. I want you to make something for you and your son to eat and God's promise to you is that throughout this famine, that flour will never run out and that jug of oil will never run out. And so she has a decision to make. Am I going to do that? Like, am I going to trust this guy? Am I going to trust this God? And she does it. And so she goes home and she makes that for him. Um, And then... The whole time during the famine, she's able to provide food for her and her son and for Elijah. So that's that story. And I've gotten my notes all mixed up here, so bear with me while I figure out where in the world I am. So this non-Israelite woman, someone outside of God's people, someone not his own, trusted God. And she trusted him with her life. She laid her life on the line and did what he told her. And it shows that God's love is for all the people, not just for the people of Israel, not just for the Jews. And so that was pretty difficult for the Jews to swallow. But the next example had to be particularly hard for them to swallow because Naaman was the commander of the army for the Arameans, an army that fought against the Israelites. And he was highly regarded by the king, but he had leprosy. And there was a young Israelite girl in his household that had been taken captive during war, and she was taken captive and made the servant of Naaman's wife. And so she tells Naaman, or she actually, she tells his wife, I wish my master would go to Elisha because I know Elisha could cure him. And so Naaman goes to the king and tells him what she's told him. The king writes him a letter to give to the king of Israel and he goes to find Elisha and he gives the king of Israel this letter. And the king of Israel is like, Oh my goodness, what is he expecting of me? Am I God? How am I supposed to cure leprosy? What am I supposed to do with this? And the only thing he can come up with is he must be trying, the king of Aramea, must be trying to pick a fight with me. This is an international disaster. Never once does this king of God's nation think about asking the prophet. Let that sink in for a minute. Never once does he think about asking God's prophet. But Elisha hears about it, and so he has the, the king send Naaman to him. And so Naaman comes to Elisha, and Elisha doesn't even go out and talk to him. He just sends a message out to him and says, you need to go dip seven times in the Jordan River, and then you'll be healed of your leprosy. And after a lot of um, anger and pride and arguments. Uh, Naaman's servants talk him in to going and and doing that and he was healed of his leprosy and so again we see here that God healed a man outside his own people because God's love is not just for the Jews it is for everyone and so also um, in verses 28 through 30 then we see that all the people in the synagogue were furious about this. And so this is where they uh, take him out and try and push him off the cliff. And again, the question is, why? Well, remember that one of the things that Luke is writing about in this book is to show the place of the Gentiles in God's kingdom through the teachings of Jesus. And he's emphasizing here that God's doing something bigger than saving only the Jews. And what makes them so angry is they don't want to hear about God's love for all people, especially when it includes people that are oppressing them and changing their way of life. They want what's good for them. Remember the physician, heal thyself. They want what's good for them and their community. They want what's going to make their lives easier. After all, they are God's people. Now, I'm going to switch directions here just a little bit and bring up something that Brad said in a sermon a few weeks ago about the word. And he said that the word informs, performs, and transforms, that it makes things happen. How does it do that? Well, the Spirit, as we read the Word, leads us to an encounter with God, and God preaches good news to us, and then because of that good news, our worldview is challenged and changed, and we're led to taking a step in obedience of faith. That's how God uses, how the Spirit uses the Word to transform us. And so I want us to look at the first two of those. I want us to look at the encounter with God and the good news. And so we're going to look back in this passage again for those two things. So when we look at the encounter with God here, we're looking at what can I learn about the character of God? What can I learn about the heart of God? What can I learn about the nature of God? And what we see here is that he's calling everyone into his presence, into a relationship with him, and more importantly, he always has. And so we see where Jesus is communicating that to the people that he's speaking to, but he's also communicating with the stories of Elisha and Elijah that this has always been the case. God has always been reaching out to people, Outside of the Jewish community. That's his nature. That's his character. And you see it in the story of Elijah and the widow. You see it in the story of Elisha healing Naaman. And you see it in Jesus telling this group that salvation is for all, not just their own. And so my question for us here is are we like God in that? Are we like God in that? Or are we more territorial? like the people were? Do we, like the Jews, long for our people to be saved but become angry when God wants to do something in the life of someone we don't deem worthy? People with very different beliefs, people with different political views, people who've taken what is ours, people who have harmed us, Do we have the nature of God in extending his mercy and his grace and his salvation to all people? In the scripture, we encounter God. And if we stay in it, then that intense exposure to him is what changes us and transforms us to look like him. E. Stanley Jones said it this way, and I've got this quote on a slide as well. Every day I go to these words and I say to them, Hast thou seen him whom my soul loves? And these words take me by the hand and lead me beyond the words to him who is the word. See, it's the encounter with God that transforms us. And I'm going to read that one more time because I think that's so beautiful and so well-worded. Every day I go to these words and I say to them, Hast thou seen him who my soul loves? And these words, the word of scripture, take me by the hand and lead me beyond the words to him who is the word. When we're reading Scripture, we need to be looking for what is the encounter with God here. Another way that the Word informs, performs, and transforms us is through the good news. And when we're in the Scripture, we should be looking for what is the good news here. And so the good news here is that salvation is for more than just the Jews, it's for the people we least expect, it's for the people they least expected. And in the same way, God may be working directly with someone in my life to call them into his presence, someone maybe that I least expect. Am I open to that? Am I ready to be sent? And here, I want you to think back to the story of Naaman and Elisha healing him. And I want you to think back to the servant girl she has been captured in war. She has been taken to a foreign country to live with foreign people, but she must have been open to where God sent her. She must have been open to God working no matter where she was because she shared with the man who captured her where he could find healing. She shared about her God with him. I'm not sure that would have been my mind frame, my mindset. I'm not sure that I would have been readily willing to do that. I think I might have been thinking, well, he took me captive. Why should I share that with him? I mean, he's turned my whole life upside down. But that's not what she did. She was ready for God to use her. And we have to be ready for God to use us. We have to be willing to be sent no matter where sent is or what sent looks like. And the bite to this is do I anticipate and see God's work in unexpected places? Or do I only want to see it in those I love, in those that are closest to me? Am I like a parent that thinks my child is the best and the greatest and does no wrong? And I only see God work in my people? Or worse yet, I only want God to work in my people? Yikes. So the way the word informs, performs, and transfers us is it brings us to an encounter with the living God And that intense exposure to him transforms us to be like him. And we get to see the good news that he speaks to us. And it bites and it challenges and it changes us. See, exegesis is not first and foremost about some intellectual theological exercise. It is first and foremost about knowing God and about living well for him. If I can learn to do something that is difficult for me to do, that's intimidating for me to do, and the result of it is that it leads me to my God and gives me a better understanding of his word, then sign me up. And quit, I'm talking to myself here, quit whining and quit floundering and quit acting like you can't do this and suck it up and figure it out and get it done. Because there's nothing I wouldn't do to know my God better, so I better put my money where my mouth is. And so if you relate to me in that in any way, my encouragement to you this morning is to keep trying. Stay in it. This kind of reading that we did this morning is not the only kind of reading of the Bible that's valuable, but it is one kind of reading of the Bible that is valuable, and if I don't ever do it, I've missed out on a whole lot, and so I would just encourage you to do that. So your homework, and this is on a slide as well, for next week is to read Matthew 15, 1 through 20, and Ephesians 5, 8 through 20. And so you want to read those passages as many times as you can. You want to find out as much background information as you can find in the Bible and in the text. And then branch out to a dictionary or commentary if you need to as well. You want to read it out loud several times. And you want to pray and ask God to open your mind to what it is he wants to say to you through that. And if you do that this week, then you'll be prepared when you come next week for us to talk through those passages. The word should always lead us to worship the God that we encounter in it. Once we see God and we see about his character and his nature, we should want to worship that God that we have encountered and the song that kept running through my mind as I was preparing for this sermon today is the song, This is Our God. And if you haven't heard it, it's a song by Chris Tomlin in which he makes a statement and he follows it with the declaration, This is our God. It also has the line in it, This is the one we have waited for, which made me think about this, this passage. Because Jesus is the one they were waiting for; He was the one they had waited for, and so I'm going to have them play this song. And some of the um, uh, some of the uh, oh goodness, what's the word I'm looking for? Statements that He makes about God are this: He's a refuge for the poor, a shelter from the storm. He will wipe away your tears and return your wasted years. He's a father to the orphan, a healer to the broken. He's a fountain for the thirsty, a lover for the lonely. And as you listen to this song, I want you to think about what statement you would make. What would your words be about God before you said, this is our God? What would you say about him? And so I want you to think through that, and then I want you to be ready to share I'm just going to have some people shout out from where you are um, what you would say to that. So, Josh, if you'll play that, that would be great. A peace giver to the restless. Yeah. Yeah, see, this is our God. And we need to think about that. Who is our God to us? What is the good news that he gives to us? And as we take communion today, I want you to continue to think about that. To celebrate the good news that Jesus brings as we remember him and as we remember who our God is during the time we take communion. I would challenge you to talk to somebody about that during communion. Share with them what your statement was about who our God is and ask them what theirs was. Um, but if you haven't taken communion with us before, We have a basket of bread and we have a cup of grape juice and you just take a piece of bread and dip it into the grape juice and um, we talk and we celebrate and um, enjoy each other's company. So we're going to do that now after I say a prayer and then we're going to come back. So as soon as you get your communion, if you can kind of move out of the way so other people can get up there and get theirs as well, then we're going to come back and we have um, a couple of songs and then we'll be done this morning. God, we are amazed at who you are. We're amazed that we get to approach you. We're amazed that you chose us and that you had a plan to include not only the people of Israel, but all people from the beginning of time, that you've always done that. Thank you for showing us that in your word. And thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for telling us our story Thank you for showing us uh, the way to salvation through that. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. And God, I just thank you for Jesus, and I thank you for the sacrifice he made for us so that we can be in relationship with you. And I pray that we'll remember that as we take communion together this morning, that we'll celebrate that, um, not only this morning, but all throughout the week. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.